Dearly Father, we thank you that we can come together this morning and celebrate that holy night 2,000 years ago when our Savior came into the world so that we might experience God with us. We thank you, and we love you, and we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be here. Good to worship with you. Merry Christmas. That was pretty weak. Merry Christmas. Um, Well, it's a grace that we get to celebrate Christmas as a church family. Um, If I have one disappointment, it's that Christmas's season is almost over. Uh, Like I've said so often, I love Christmas time. There's just so much to enjoy this, this time of year. And obviously, I'm in good company. It seems like most people love this season. Um, And there does seem to be something special about it. In fact, if you watch TV or movies, you would probably think that Christmas is the answer to a lot of life's problems. Uh, Like I mentioned a a couple of weeks ago, I've seen a lot of Hallmark Christmas movies lately. Um, Still not embarrassed to say that. And um, I do feel like I need to clarify that I do that at home, like when I'm exercising on my treadmill. That's not what I do at the office. So if you're thinking I I did that for this sermon illustration, I don't. Um, But I've seen a lot. In fact, I was on a flight recently with my daughter, and she was next to me watching a boxing movie with the uh, expected gratuitous blood and violence, and I was watching a Hallmark Christmas movie. And, um, but in my defense, like, who knows if they'll get together? Like, they only have every single movie, but you never know, so I had to watch it to the end. But one simple premise of these Christmas movies is that Christmas solves a lot of problems, like relationship problems, Christmas fixes that. Uh, Not sure if I should follow my dreams. Christmas fixes that. Looking for love. Christmas fixes that. Wondering if I should leave the big city and go back to my small hometown I grew up in, start a bakery, and reignite a a romance with my old high school flame. I don't know if that's too specific, but Christmas fixes that, (laughs) if that's you. But we all know this is not how it really is, right? Uh, As much as we love Christmas time, we don't see it as the fix to life's problems. I mean, if it's June and you're going through a rough rough week, you don't think, you know, I should just put up a Christmas tree. Like, that would make everything better, right? I think all of us recognize that while the affections and adoration, uh, adornment of Christmas are great, they don't generally change our lives. So while we love the idea of Christmas magic, we also understand it's, it's probably more sentiment than anything else. But my hope isn't to take away from Christmas, rather to point out that while sentiment is just fine, our Savior is truly significant. He offers the help and the hope that we need. He's deserving of our faith and love and worship, and so he is so worthy of celebration this time of year. Now, with that in mind, I think a more realistic and yet more beautiful picture of what Christmas means than, say, maybe a Hallmark movie uh, comes from a line from the song we just sang, O Holy Night. Uh, It says, a weary world rejoices. So get that, a weary world rejoices. It's realistic because on one hand, it acknowledges the weariness of our lives. And it may seem odd on Christmas Sunday to talk about weariness, but at the same time, that is our reality. The sights and the sound and the decoration and the glitz of this time of year are not only temporary, but often almost kind of a facade of what is really going on. Right? No, no amount of tinsel will change the medical diagnosis you just received, or no Christmas movie will solve the fear for the future that, that causes you to lose sleep. No gift will help you overcome the worry you feel for your children. And so I think weariness describes well our world. For many of us, weariness is just, it's just the tiredness of everyday life the tiredness of work and relationships and late night feedings and taking kids to practice and deadlines and finals, 
uh, taking care of aging parents. But for some, the weariness is deeper than that. It's about sin and suffering. It's about real problems and pain. It's about disappointment and even despair. Maybe your child has walked away from the Lord or, or finances seem so tight or you're experiencing brokenness in a relationship or your marriage is angry or it's cold or you feel like you're losing the battle against sin or just taking care of your child with special needs is, has been especially taxing lately. Whatever it is, you know the feeling of spiritual weariness that makes you long so deeply for something better, something that would offer hope, something that would seemingly make things right. Well, this is you understand, like I said, that while the, the, the song lyric is realistic, it is also beautiful. Because the song doesn't just say the weary world. It says the weary world rejoices. And the picture is that there's something about Christ coming into our world that offers hope. Something that, that says that the weariness that we're experiencing is not the end of the story. Something that says Christ will make things right. In other words, as much as the trappings of Christmas don't solve any problems, Christ, the, the person of Christmas, truly does allow our weary hearts to rejoice. And so with that in mind, let's look at a sto the story of Joseph and the birth of Christ. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. It's, it's a fairly well-known story, but if it's new to you, as we come to our story, Joseph is engaged to be married to Mary. He, but she's found out to be pregnant, and so he decides <clears throat> both the right thing and the kind thing to do is to divorce her quietly. Back then, an engagement can only be broken by divorce. But before this happens, he receives a visit from an angel telling him not to be afraid to marry her because this child was from God and would be the savior of the world. And so let me read to you our passage. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, there's many things we could focus on in a study of this passage, but this morning, what I really want to look at is what Matthew, who, who's the author of the story, writes about the situation. And so understand, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he's trying to convey to them through this gospel the idea that Jesus is their long-awaited Savior. And that's why he says this in verses 22 and 23. It's kind of his commentary on the story, and it'll be our focus this morning. He said, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Matthew is telling his readers and us that this child was God himself. And understand this more than anything else in this whole passage would have, been, uh, would have caused his Jewish readers to pause because it, it was a promise kind of greater than they could have possibly dreamed for. 
And so this is what I want us to learn from this, uh, these couple of verses, that the, the reality of God with us allows our weary hearts to rejoice. The reality of God with us allows our weary hearts to rejoice. So let's look at that. Three reasons the Emmanuel, or God with us, allows our weary hearts to rejoice. First, because Emmanuel, uh, remember that's God with us, is the demonstration of God's unfailing faithfulness. The Emmanuel is the demonstration of God's unfailing faithfulness. So as we look at our story, realize that the Jewish readers reading Matthew's gospel had heard of the idea of this God with us, and it would have been very significant to them, significant to them, because it was not only one of the great themes of scripture, but it really was meant to describe the desire of every faithful Jew's heart. And so to appreciate this, understand that God with us kind of helps frame the story of the Bible. So if you look at the whole story of the Bible, think of this idea of God with us. Now, if you're newer to Christianity, realize that the Bible isn't simply a collection of rules or an encyclopedia about God or, or, or just about wisdom for living. At its heart, it's a story. Now, I use the term story not to speak of fictional events, but I use it to describe the narrative of true events that the Bible describes. And maybe you need to say the Bible isn't just any story, but it's the story, the absolutely true story that spans all of time and encompasses all of life. In other words, the, the story of the gospel is our story, and God with us is one of its great themes. In fact, if you were to kind of break it down, maybe you could look at it like this. Creation was where God with us was established. The fall is where God with us was lost. The cross is where God with us was renewed. And heaven is where God with us was fully consummated. And to see this kind of in the story, we need to back up to the very beginning, which is the beginning of the Bible. Because in the beginning, the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. So he created the world, he created people in it, and when he did it, everything was perfect. In fact, a good way to describe the state of paradise was God with us. And it's because nothing was acting as a barrier between, between a people and God. In fact, the way it was described was that God would walk in the Garden of Eden, that was paradise, with his creation. I mean, can you even imagine what it must have been like to walk with God but at the very least, imagine just perfect joy as humanity uh, knew fully what it meant to love God and to be loved by God. Right? It's greater than anything we've ever experienced. In fact, if you think about any good thing that you've experienced in this world, just trust that it's a shadow of the joy that they knew when they were with God. So creation was where God with us was established, but needless to say, we don't live in paradise. There's, there's suffering, there's brokenness all around us. But Why? Because just three chapters into the Bible, we have the fall. It's where sin entered the world and it ruins everything. Remember, sin is not just the wrong things we do, but it's this disease that corrupts everything. And since that time, every person has been a sinner by nature and by action, and the world has felt its curse. Worse, because God created us and in love calls us to live for him, our sin, our, our disobedience is first and foremost against him. And so our sin separates us from God and makes us deserving of his wrath. Remember, as much as God is merciful and loving, he is also holy. Meaning he can't just ignore sin because that would make him unrighteous and God is perfectly righteous. But to our point, sin then creates this barrier between fallen humanity and our, and our holy God. We are created to be with God and the fall means that God with us was lost. And the way it's depicted in Genesis chapter 3 is that after sin, God again comes to Eden, but instead of Adam and Eve enjoying his presence, it says they hid. 
Like they, they knew they could no longer be in the presence of God, no longer could they walk with God, but in their sin, their, revela- their re- relationship was devastated and nothing would ever be the same again. And so with the fall, God with us was lost. You can almost imagine for Adam and Eve that the two people who ever got to experience God with us on earth, that this was the, the great longing of their heart to once again walk with God, to know him intimately. I mean, you can almost see them replaying the fall over and over in their heads a thousand times and wondering what life would have been like if they'd only listened to God. Like to have experienced God with us and then to have lost it must have been the most pain, more painful than we can possibly imagine. But I understand that whether we realize it or not, since, this has, since then, this has been the great longing of everyone's heart. Right? To once again be with God. That's how we were created, right? It's in our spiritual DNA to, to worship and to trust. All of humanity was made to know God, to, to, to worship God, to love God. As the Westminster Catechism says, our chief end as humans is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But in the absence of God, what will we do? We'll turn elsewhere. In other words, when you think about people, their, their search for meaning and purpose and value, it's really a search for God. So, so we're hoping that we can find significance and occupational or educational success or meaning in our relationships or happiness in going places and seeing things. And yet as meaningful as those things can be, they will always fall short because they weren't meant to bear the weight of our existence. I mean, when you're made for God, having a successful career will always fall short of giving you what you want and what you need. Now, looking back to our story uh, God in love and mercy doesn't leave humanity lost. But at the same time with the fall and the curse coming upon the world, God promises a savior. He would be this future king that w- would save humanity from their sins. They, they would call him the Messiah. That means the anointed one. The New Testament term we use is the Christ. So when you hear about Jesus Christ, it's, it's a title. It's, he's Jesus the Christ. Now as God puts his plan in action, he establishes the nation of Israel. And he says that from them would come the Messiah. So Israel kind of becomes his, his chosen people, his favored nation, and yet despite this, everything in their nation was this reminder that they weren't right with God. The rules and rituals, the sacrifices, the temple, everything pointed to the idea that they could not truly be with God. But what we need to see is that through that all, God was faithful. Because as we start to go through the Old Testament, it really becomes this story of both Israel's unfaithfulness and, and, and more, the more the general wickedness of the world. And time and time again, we see humanity's failures. And time and time again, we see that God is faithful. I mean, think about the stories you learned in Sunday school. Even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard of them, Noah and Moses and David and Goliath. We're often tempted to think these are teaching stories of morality or courage or the miraculous. And while those are important things, the hero has always been God. And one of the most important truths we take from each of these stories is that God is powerful and he is faithful. Because remember this, if Israel was lost, like if they were destroyed by war or foreign nations or captivity or whatever, there would be no Messiah. There would be no savior to rescue the world and there would be no hope. So there would never again be God with us. But God is constantly faithful. And maybe one of the best pictures of this is during the period of the kings. So Israel had these kings. They were supposed to lead people in righteousness and in the worship of of the living God. But instead, they would move them away from God to the worship of the idols of the land. 
So despite like a few good kings, in general, the kings would move people further and further away from God. And at some point you would think, well, like enough is enough, right? God should be done with Israel and more, he should be done with the world. Think about in particular King Ahaz. He lived about 700 years before Christ and he was this particularly wicked king. Not only did he encourage the people to worship idols, but he actually sacrificed his son on the altar of one. I mean, that's the height of human wickedness. And you can almost imagine for some, they're thinking at this point, okay, everything's lost. I mean, if the, king, the kings of God's people have so turned their back on God that they're sacrificing their kids on idols to, uh, to, to these, to these foreign idol, on altars to these foreign idols, then what hope is there for their nation? And yet even here, in, the, in the, some of the darkest periods of Israel's history, you find the patience and mercy and faithfulness of God. Because in Isaiah 7, we find that Ahaz is facing this threat from an enemy that is much bigger than them. And yet, despite how sinful and wicked Ahaz is, God had promised to preserve the nation. He had promised to send a savior. And so he sends Isaiah to Ahaz to tell him not to fear because God would not let them be destroyed. In fact, to prove this, Isaiah says that Ahaz can ask a sign from God and God will, will grant him a sign. So kind of get that. Isaiah was going to Ahaz and said, like, if you're not sure if God will be faithful, then ask him to do something amazing and he'll do it. You can only imagine what you would ask for. But because he is so wicked, Ahaz actually refuses. And yet still God is faithful. And so Isaiah offers this prophecy. It's the one that Matthew quotes in our passage. Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, Isaiah says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So he's telling Israel, there's going to be this virgin-born Messiah that would be God with us. In other words, despite the failures of Israel, despite the fact that they were soon going to be deported and taken into captivity, Israel would survive, and miraculously, the Messiah would be born from, from this nation. And then we flash forward 700 years to the first Christmas and God had never given up on his promise. We see he is faithful in sending Jesus, the long awaited savior to the world. And this is why Matthew in our our passage makes sure we understand who this baby is, right? He is the fulfillment of the Isaiah seven prophecy. He is the Emmanuel, he is God with us. Now, in a moment, we'll talk about what Jesus did to allow us to be with God. But first, I hope you notice that the Christmas story highlights the faithfulness of God. In other words, when we read about the Christmas story, we often focus on Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and, of course, the baby in a manger, and we should. But really, we're kind of jumping into the story midway through it. And and the narrative leading up to it is just full of, of twists and turns and tragedies and triumphs. But what this should remind us of is our faithful God. The fact that Jesus was born reminds us God will always be faithful. He'll never give up on the promises he's made to us. He made a promise to send a savior and that savior came in the person of Jesus. So do you see why Christmas and the idea of the Emmanuel, God with us, should remind us of the Lord's faithfulness? Now pause and consider what that means for your life. No matter what, if you are a believer, God will be faithful. Like he has a loving plan for you. And maybe this is hard to see in your weariness. Like maybe you're suffering significantly thinking like, where is God in all of this? Or, or you look at your life and you think like, this is God's plan, right? His plan is a loss of a loved one or divorce or extended singleness or crippling physical pain or loneliness or unemployment or a job I hate. This is God's plan. 
Maybe you're even asking the same question that some of the Israelites likely did. Like, has God forgotten? Like, does he even really care? But do you realize that God is lovingly in control of your life? And if he can use all the sin and the suffering and the ugliness and the failures of what was going on in the Old Testament to bring about the coming of Christ, then trust that he can do something beautiful in your life. And this doesn't mean we always understand what he's doing or why he's doing it, but we can trust this. God will be faithful and we can trust him. And so even in your pain, God has a purpose one that comes from the depth of his infinite love, that's guided by his unfathomable wisdom. And it may not be what you want, but it, it will be what is best. And in this, your weary heart can rejoice. Earlier in the year, in, in uh, her testimony, one of the ladies of our church read a quote from the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, something I've reflected on a lot this year. But Spurgeon said this, he said, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. And it's such a powerful reality. Like our faithful and loving God, he puts us exactly where we need to be. And there was any place better for us to be, we would be there. Not necessarily to experience uh, ease and comfort, but he puts us where we are to accomplish his great will and to draw us closer to himself in humility, faith, and love. So our weary hearts can rejoice because the Emmanuel <clears throat> is the demonstration of God's faithfulness. Second idea, our weary hearts can rejoice because Emmanuel is the promise of God's loving presence. Right? We get to be with God. Right? I think one of the blessings of this time of the year for many of us is being with family. I know that's not true for everyone, and I know that looks different for a lot of families. Uh, years ago, I went to Pastor Tim's, um, I went to, to Alabama to preach at Pastor Tim's family's church. His dad's a pastor there. Um, and, and so I stayed with, with him and his parents, his two sisters, and, and I thought, man, this is so different from my family, right? Because when we got there, Pastor Tim just he said, this is, oh man, I, I love you guys. I'm like, well, you can just tell your siblings like I love you. That's kind of weird. Um, and then they decided to sing together, like just sing together. And, and then when, they, and they're really good, first of all. And then when they were done, they, again, Pastor Tim, oh man, I just miss singing with you guys. And I'm like, I've never said that <laughs> in my entire life. I mean, I've told my brothers not to sing, right? Because my ears were bleeding, but I have never said I've missed that. And I thought like for us, it would be a lot different. Like I, I would maybe see one of my brothers and I'd say, oh man, I haven't, I haven't seen you in a while. Like I was kind of questioning your salvation. And, and what, but what that means is like, I love you, right? I miss you. And and then he would probably say, well, yeah, I was kind of looking for a church with a real pastor. And, and that would mean, yeah, I missed you too. And then we would like sit in silence and watch sports for a couple hours. And that means like I value our time together, right? So, I mean, I know it's different for every family and being with family is awesome. And that's one of the things like around Christmas time that for many of us, that's what makes it special. We get to see family. But this idea of being with family is still not as good as what it means to be with God, right? And again, that's, that's one of the purposes of the Bible here. Now, we mentioned Jesus being the Emmanuel, God with us, but realize it's more than the fact that Jesus lived among the in the world among his people. Like for 33 years, he was with people. Because the problem wasn't simply an absence of God's physical presence, but that as sinners were destined for hell, eternally separated from God and his grace and love. So realize that the idea of God with us wasn't simply that Jesus was, um, was with people on earth, but he broke down the barrier between man and God, um, the barrier of sin between man and God so that once again, we could experience what it means to be with God. 
How do you do that? We, we said earlier that the problem is that we're sinners deserving judgment. So what did Jesus do? He took the judgment in our place, right? He was our substitute. So think about it. If we're going to avoid punishment, then someone would have to take that punishment for us. If we were going to avoid eternal death, then someone would have to die for us. And that's what Jesus did after living this, this perfect life and this sinless life, he, the, the, the one that we were unable to, he goes to the cross to suffer God's wrath for every believer for all of time. And thus in Jesus, the curse is lifted and we can have victory over sin. In the cross, God with us was renewed. But you kind of see that picture? Like Jesus was credited with sin and punished for it. He experienced hell and we are credited with his perfect life and we get to be treated like sons and daughters. We can once again be part of the family of God. And that means we experience God with us. If you're not a Christian, realize that this is what it means to be a Christian, to be right with God, to know God with us. It's not about like church attendance or about being moral, or about saying some prayer. It's about repenting of your sin and having real faith that Jesus is your savior. And so let me encourage you to believe today. And if you have questions, ask the person who brought you or talk with one of our leaders. We would love to share with you more about who Jesus is. In fact, a couple of things maybe that might be an encouragement to you. If, not, if you're not a Christian, we have a, a book for you um, at the, uh, outside in the foyer at the, at the Coffee with the Pastor. And it just kind of shares with you some of the things that we believe. It's called the Ultimate Christmas List, Wish List. What if you could get what you're really hoping for uh, by Rico Tice. And we also have one by Timothy Keller called Counterfeit Gods that describes why we turn to the world instead of God. And there are gifts to you. We would love for you to go and, and get those. You can meet one of our pastors. Second, we're going to be offering a four-week class beginning uh, January 21st called Cross-Examined. And it's our chance to kind of introduce you to what Christianity is, to hopefully answer a lot of the big questions that you might have. We'll look at a summary of the whole Bible. So if you wonder what the Bible is about, we're going to tell you in one session. We'll look at what the gospel means. We'll try to answer some of the big questions and objections people have about the gospel. And then we'll talk about what the gospel means for everyday life. And so we would love for you to join us. You can get more information and details uh, on our website and sign up there as well. Um, all right, back to our study. Now, forgiveness in heaven would be enough, obviously, for us to celebrate forever. Um, for, the, for, for eternity, we get to know God with us. But amazingly, it's more than that because we get to experience the presence of God right now. Like We get to know his nearness and his love. And it may seem like it goes without saying, well, of course, I guess God is near or he loves us. But at the same time, it doesn't always feel like that, does it, right? Uh, and so in your weariness, you wish that God felt near, or you wish that you were more intimately experiencing his love. My, my guess is that for some of you, you long for that right now. Like in your weariness, God feels distant. Like you, you pray almost like you're, you're, just, you're just yelling into a void. And even though your theology may tell you something different, it feels like no one is really listening. Or maybe in your weariness, you feel like you're alone in your suffering. Not that no one is around, but no one can fix things, or maybe no one can really understand the pain that you're experiencing. Maybe you feel weariness because it seems like God is almost indifferent to your life, like you're in so much pain, and you've tried everything. You're praying, and you're reading your Bible, and you're going to church, and yet nothing seems to be working, and your despair only grows. I so understand that the idea of God with us wasn't just about the fact that one day in heaven we get to be with God. But as Christians, right now, he promises to be with us. Earlier, I mentioned that the idea of God with us frames the whole story of the Bible. But realize it also frames the gospel of Matthew. Because in Matthew 1, he introduces his gospel with the idea of the Emmanuel, God with us, that's Jesus being born. 
But then in Matthew 28, at the very end of his gospel, he brings up the idea again. Again, in Matthew 28, it's about, uh, it's after Christ's death and resurrection. We're right near the end of his earthly ministry. It's before he ascends to heaven and he's speaking to his apostles and his other followers. And he tells them, go and make disciples of all nations, right? And understand this wasn't simply like this call to evangelize or tell people about Jesus. Uh, There was a certain gravity to this. Not only was the task itself seemingly impossible, I mean, go make disciples of all nations, But it really was not just a call to strive for the gospel and even suffer for the gospel, but really ultimately a call to die for the gospel, which most of his disciples did. And so if you're Jesus, what do you say to offer encouragement and comfort to those that you were sending off uh, to a task that is not only impossible, but exceedingly dangerous? Well, Jesus reminds them of his presence. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You hear that? When we study this passage, often we focus rightly on what it means to make disciples. But can you, you can just imagine for, for the disciples themselves, they, what they clung to in those hard moments of suffering and desperate moments of ministry was the nearness of God. Right? That Jesus would be with them as, as they faced their deaths. What, what got them through were those words, I will be with you always. And they took those words to their grave. But understand the same reality is meant to encourage our hearts. Because if you think about it, so many of our fears and worries come down to this. We feel like we are face, what we're facing is too great for us. Like we, we want so much for the physical pain to end or for the, for the wandering child to come home or for that relationship to be fixed. And yet it just seems like there's nothing we can do about it. And the reality is in that if God is not near, then we do have so much to fear. Most of us have kind of seen that. Have you seen a small child all of a sudden look around and not see their parents and begin to cry? Maybe because they saw me or something, right? If we feel God is not with us, then every danger and every suffering in the world seems like it can overwhelm us. Maybe we literally want to cry. And that's why biblically the nearness of God is such an important reality that we're, we're meant to understand and believe in. And that is why over and over you you read things in scripture like the nearness of God is my good. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted or the Lord is near to all who call call upon him. If we believe that God is near, present in our struggles, it makes all the difference. I mean, just think about for a moment, God is with you. Your hope is not in some far off deity that you want to make your life better. Your hope is not in some God that you're hoping that will be good to you if you live a good life. Your hope is not that in what you have or change circumstances or in some relationship. Your hope is in Christ who right now is with you. I mean, what are you going through that's like super difficult? What if you knew that Christ himself was right next to you? like standing in his power and his love, there to walk with you and help you and defend you and strengthen you and encourage you? Would you be afraid? Like if he's right there with you, would you be worried? The point is he is with you to the end of the age. And it doesn't mean that he shields you from every difficulty, but because he is with you and because he loves you, you can trust that whatever experiences of pains of life that that do come into your life, there is a good and there's a great purpose for them. And in that, our weary hearts can rejoice. 
For those of you who are younger, maybe, maybe those of you who are uh, teenagers, I know that can be weary, right? Difficulties with parents, challenging relationships, worries about the future, maybe walking onto campus and feeling all the, the pressures of culture or that pressure of trying to fit in and be liked. But can I encourage you to remind yourself often of that reality that God is with you. I mean, imagine you believed when you walked onto campus after Christmas break that God was with you. I mean, with you. Would you ever have anything to fear? But your weary heart would be able to rejoice. All right, point number three. Our weary hearts can rejoice because Emmanuel is the hope of a better story. Emmanuel is the hope of a better story. When you think of the blessings of God, what comes to mind? I think for most of us, we think about like good circumstances, like, oh man, this happened, hashtag God's blessing me. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Tennessee and I was gonna have lunch with a pastor I know. And uh, I said, oh, you can pick where, where we go eat. And he says, do you like Mexican food? Which is, I mean, you, if you know me, you know I have this idolatrous love for Mexican food, which is why I don't wanna eat it in Tennessee, right? Because <laughs> I, ate, I ate Mexican food in the South once and it was, not good. It was horrible, and that's being gracious. And, and then I look at it on Yelp, and it has three stars. I'm like, how bad do you have to be to be a Mexican food in Nashville with a three-star rating? Uh, but then right before I was going to leave, we realized that it wasn't open. And so instead, he took me to this like family-style southern restaurant. Okay, They literally passed me a basket of fried chicken. And I'm like, I texted my wife. I just texted her numbers 624 and 25. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Because that's how I felt, right? I go, someone just handed me a basket of, of fried chicken followed by a basket of biscuits. I mean, this, Jesus loves me, right? And that's, that's how I can feel. When you think of rejoicing in your weariness, isn't it easy to think like that? Like we can rejoice when things are good, when things are fixed, when things are better over a basket of fried chicken. But do you realize that what this is? It's really just putting our faith in something or something else for our hope. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in that, and if I get that, then I'll be okay. But something that the idea of God with us tells us is that God is truly worthy of our hope because he's going to make everything right. So if our weary hearts are going to rejoice, we do need hope. So remember that, because hope is really this powerful thing. It can get us through any difficulty if we have a resolute hope. And yet, all of us know that it's not always easy to come by, right? Especially in our weariness, it can be something hard to hold on to. Like maybe you have little hope that your marriage will get better or that your parents will ever come to faith or that you'll find a significant other. I'm guessing for a few of you, you feel like you have no hope at all. Right? There just seems so little to hold on to or nothing that would ever make things right. And so you might even describe yourself as hopeless. But realize that as Christians, we of all people should have real resolute hope. Because though hope is not unique to Christians, right, Christian hope is unique. Because for us, hope is not simply about a desire for something better. It's not a focus on, on, on situations or things. Right? That's the world's hope, right? They're, they're hoping that something gets better. For us, uh, our hope is about a person, right? Our hope is in Jesus, who is the Christ. And our hope is not simply um, like this desire, but it's this trust and this confidence. In other words, Christian hope is the confident expectation that God's will be gracious through, to us through Jesus Christ. We can believe that and hold on to that. It doesn't mean that we always get what we want or that we avoid suffering, but we can be assured that God is moving for us and accomplishing his good work within us. And Christmas is the perfect time to remind us 
because in the Christmas story, we see hope manifested in Jesus, right? God with us. And you realize hope is not just that Jesus kind of came into the world, or even that Jesus said, hell, be with you always, but also has this future look, this assurance that God will make things right. So if you kind of remember our storyline, right? We had creation and, and the God with us was, was, was established. We had the fall, God with us was lost. We have the cross where God with us was renewed. But understand that God with, the, the God with us is kind of the, the culmination of it all. And in heaven, we will we'll know the consummation of God with us. Like I've often said, every great story has a great ending. The Bible is no different. And so as we move towards Revelation, the last book in the Bible, when Jesus returns, he comes to judge, he comes to make things right. Ultimately, he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And there's a scene at the very end where we find God at the center of it all. Revelation 21, three and four. And it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Did you get that? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they'll be with his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Right? This This is why we talk about the idea that it kind of frames our story. We, we saw God with us established. We saw God with us lost. We saw God with us renewed. And here we see God with us uh, consummated. And the thing that we need to remember is that one day God in Christ will return and make things right. And that ultimate blessing in that moment was that we get to be with God. We might use the term eschatological hope. It's, it's the idea of an end times hope that the, in the promise that God will make things right. And it's hard for me, because I fall short, like how, how can I describe the glory of being with God? But just trust that when we are with God, when we worship and fellowship with him in a way that is beyond what we can possibly imagine, things will finally be as they were meant to be, and all will be right with the world. And in that, uh, and when we are with God, our hearts will never be weary again. In heaven, God with us will finally be consummated. <coughs> And this means that God has written our story and he's written an ending that is far better than we can possibly imagine. I've had some conversations over the last couple of months with believers going through significant trials, very serious health problems that don't really seem to have any uh, hopeful outcomes, those experiencing relational brokenness, abuse, those who have no idea what God wants next for them, those who are grieving deeply over their kids. And there's always this part of me that wants to try to fix things. Like maybe if we do these things, then we can just make things right. And yet very quickly, I have to come to that conclusion, I I can't. And so what I often just try to convey is that God has written a loving story for their lives. And even in the pain of it all, he's active and he's moving because he cares more for them than they can possibly imagine. Right? We, We have to have hope that God has written a better story for our lives. The current chapter of suffering you're in, it's not the whole story. God has done more for us. And so let me close with this. For me, something I've been trying to remind myself of the last few weeks is not just vaguely the idea of God with us. I've been trying to think of the idea of God with me. Because I was kind of meditating on that. Okay, God with us, God with us. And I got, no, God is with me, right? now. God's with me. And so over and over, I've meditated on that truth and sometimes I had to fight to believe it. Like my mind is wandering, I'm struggling for whatever reason, and I'm trying to think, God is with me. 
But when I can hold on to that, it's just this reminder that God's story is better. Like he's doing something, he's with me, I can trust him in that. And so I pray that you see that God with us means the story that God has written for your life is far better and far greater than you can imagine. And so I pray that you would think deeply about the idea of the Emmanuel this Christmas, the idea of God with us and how it changes everything about your story. Whether your story is suffering, your story is sin, your story is confusion, your story is discontentment, your story is worry, God with us changes everything. I mean, to me, like part of the blessing of being Christian is that we can find hope in our sufferings, but along with that, we can have the hope that one day suffering will be no more. I like the way Rico Tice put it in his book, the book we were, we were giving out today, but he says, with Jesus, the worst thing is never the last thing. And isn't that true with God with us? Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, for the opportunity that we get this morning to think through the idea of God with us. And I pray, Lord, that for those especially who are going through difficult times, that knowing the comfort that you are with them would bring them the encouragement they need. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.